evening. Good evening and welcome to LaSalle College High School. Uh, my name is Marty Jackson. I'm the Director of Guidance here at LaSalle. I'm going to give a special <clears throat> welcome to parents from Buena Mercy Academy and Mount St. Joseph's and of course our own LaSalle parents. Um, it is our pleasure tonight to host Dr. Michael Bradley. Dr. Bradley is an expert on how to deal with teens and he's been an expert for a long time. Okay, um, And we have witnessed firsthand over the last three to five years anxiety and depression spiking in teenagers. Just absolutely spiking through the roof. I was kidding Dr. Bradley this year, the first day of school. I usually have the day off. It's like, how you doing? I didn't have a chance to get lunch. First day of school, around nine periods, I didn't stop seeing kids. And it was all anxiety, depression, issues. Um, tonight, okay, we're, as I said, we're very fortunate. Dr. Bradley will give you strategies, some ideas on how to deal with your teens. Uh, Dr. Bradley grew up in Philadelphia, where, as he says, he barely survived his own adolescence. That's true. <laughs> like so many teens, his path to his passion found many detours. He was an officer in the U.S. Army, a disc jockey, and a law school student before fate landed him a job working with teenagers, a job he, he never dreamed he'd love. That experience caused him to switch his studies to psychology, eventually earning his doctorate from Temple University. In the 30 years since, Dr. Bradley has worked with all kinds of teens in all kinds of places to include schools, prisons, and community programs. In addition to being a licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Bradley holds specialized certification in the treatment of substance abuse and trauma disorders, and is a diplomat and a fellow of the American Board of Forensics Examiners. His publications include numerous articles in five books. The one I'd like to tell your sons about is a book he wrote, Your Parents Are Crazy. And they go, yeah, yeah. But he also wrote a book for parents, Your Teens Are Crazy. Play both sides. <laughs> uh, his most recent book, which is up top, is just terrific with, with great strategies. Uh, beyond all that, Dr. Bradley remains, maintains that his best credential is having parent, parented two millennial teens into young adulthood and having lived to tell about it. That's true. Okay, now to speak on anxiety, depression, and resilience, please join me in welcoming the award-winning psychologist, Dr. Michael Bradley. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Brad. Thank you. For that warm applause, before we jump into uh, tonight's topic, can I get a sense of who you guys are in this parenting gig and the service we call it Service Stripes, you know, how long you've been doing this? Can I get a show of hands? Who here has eldest child, age, excuse me, age 25 or over? Okay, I'll be calling on you to witness a few things. Eldest child, age 18 to 24? Okay. Eldest child, age 13 to 17? Well, that brings them out, doesn't it? Yeah. Anybody we didn't get to yet? Anybody here with kids that haven't that hit 13 yet? Oh, we have a couple. Uh, do you want me to tell them, or do you want to tell them? <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
if you want to leave, I fully understand. It's okay. You know. But in any event, well, I have a tip for you newbies that haven't hit the teen years yet, and it's a good thing you're here. Be very careful of the parent karma thing. You guys know about the parent karma thing? See, raising a kid up to adolescence is, is easy. I mean, we have a special needs child ourselves, but it ain't nothing like adolescence, right? Veterans from the audience? So you're bumbling along. It's usually a mother with a daughter, six, seven, eight, nine years old, and you guys are best buddies. You go out shopping together, you get those matching outfits. You go for lunch at those silly places with the tiny little sandwiches. And you come home after one of these wonderful days with your sweet little daughter. And on the front lawn of your neighbor's house is your neighbor with her 16-year-old daughter who is cursing and screaming and throwing lawn ornaments at her mom. Newbie parents are tempted to think a thought they should not. What's that thought? Yeah, my daughter will never talk to me like that. Nah, don't do that. Light a candle, say a prayer, whatever your belief system is, do not judge, because until you walk in those shoes, you have no idea what it's like, right? Do not tempt faith. Well, as you heard, <clears throat> one of my former abbreviated careers was as an officer in the United States Army, and, you know, it's kind of a club you never leave, so I've stayed in touch with that organization over the years. One of the things I do is work with cases from the, the VA, particularly difficult cases. Uh, vets coming back from deployed situations. And in the beginning, it was mostly about guys having severe PTSD from what everybody thinks about with PTSD. In terrible situations, you know, horrible things happen. And a couple of these cases uh, really intrigued me over the years. First of all, as I was working with these vets, over time I began to kind of, you can see it in their eyes when they have the PTSD thing. It's just, you know, they used to call it the thousand-yard stare, there's kind of the detachment, <clears throat> just kind of holding it together sort of thing. Um, but PTSD, it turned out that it isn't what we thought it was. Uh, because I started to see that look in a lot of folks' eyes. When I say guys, when we talk about men and women, just the generic term, that are coming back from deployment. But we began to see those symptoms in folks coming back from deployments that never heard a shot fired in anger. And we began to wonder, what the heck is this? Because they were having the same issues of anxiety, depression, and even suicidal thinking, and suicide attempts. So as we took that in and began to research it, it turns out that PTSD is not what people think about some singular horrific event. However, there's another form of PTSD, which is the drip, 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 the stress and the anxiety of being deployed in a hostile land where most of the people hate your guts and they would take you out if they could, being away from family, being away from supports, uh, typically having terrible financial stresses as well, I don't know if you knew that, but soldiers are poor. Um, am I coming in and out on this microphone? Do I have the sound guy here? We seem to be... We're okay? Yeah, I'm not dropping out? Okay, good. Um, these <clears throat> folks are coming back from these deployments just having survived the daily stress, the drip, drip, drip of being away from loved ones, being in a hostile area, and then coming home and having these same symptoms. I tell you this because, guys, what I see in those vets' eyes coming back from deployments, 
I've begun to see in your teenagers' eyes over the past 10 years, 15 years. Um, our kids, our teenagers, amazingly, are suffering and even dying in numbers almost exactly the same as veterans returning from uh, war zone deployments, whether or not they heard shots fired. So we actually came up with another diagnosis for these folks who never were in a horrific situation. It's called PTSD complex type. And that's what is afflicting these last couple of generations of teenagers. And we expect will continue to afflict the next couple of generations until we do something to try to turn it around. I also see a critical difference in the veterans between the folks that do okay and seem to handle this, because that was always the dilemma, right? I'm sure you, if you were in the service or were, you know people who were. A lot of people come back and they seem to be just fine. And even some of them have been through terrible situations, but others do not. And we tried to ferret out what were the differences? Uh, what is it that helps people go through these sorts of stressors and not develop these severe mental illnesses? Two soldiers that I work with can kind of illustrate the point. Uh, each of them have been through a traumatic amputation, that's you know, losing a limb, one the right and one the left. And the first guy I got the call from the VA guys, said, hey, we got this case, the guy won't get out of bed, uh, he won't see anybody, he won't talk to anybody, he's promised to kill himself with his first opportunity. That sort of makes sense, right? I mean, that's what I would do if I lost a leg. And by the way, these veterans, most of the time, they're teenagers. We forget that. You see these folks in uniform and they look all kind of confident and you know, fit and so forth. They're, they're children. Uh, adolescence, by the way, has been officially extended to age 25. We'll talk about that when we talk about brain development. So these are essentially large children going into these terrible situations. So that guy, I sort of understand, right? His life is over, such a young age, being horribly mutilated can't work the way he used to, he was a manual laborer before he joined up. Then I got a call some years later from the same center, and they said, we got a guy, traumatic amputation. They said, let me guess, he won't get out of bed. They said, no, get this, we can't keep him in bed. When we tell him to do 10 reps of something, he does 30 in physical therapy. We're afraid he's gonna hurt himself. <clears throat> he not only won't stay in bed and rest, he's up roaming the halls, you know, on his crutches, greeting the incoming vets, forming in, uh, informal, made it up himself, support groups, get the guys together to chat, to go visit the guys that won't get out of bed, that are saying they're going to die, all on his own. And they said the big problem is he will not wear a walking prosthetic device. When you, you lose a leg, you have to get a, a false leg. And just learning how to walk on a false leg is really, really hard. Incredible, you gotta rewire the brain. Well, he wasn't having the standard leg. He wanted the runner's prosthetic, because the guy used to be a runner, he was an athlete. He said, I don't have time for that walker thing. I want the running prosthetic. But you can't do that. It takes a lot of time to learn to use the static leg, let alone uh, learn how to do the runner's leg. That's an incredible feat. So I went to see him. I'm talking to him, and he's impatient with me. He's got things to do. And he said, look, you know, I, I know what your, your question is going to be. He says to me, I know what you're thinking. I said, what am I thinking? He said, you're thinking, 
I've got some kind of a weird reaction to my trauma. Like I don't want to deal with it, right? I said, well, thought crossed my mind. I said, you think I'm like going to be Superman to avoid my own pain, right? And I said, yeah, kind of like that. I was curious. What do you think? He said, man, don't tell me that I don't feel the pain. He said, I feel the pain. But I wake up in the middle of the night, or in the graphic stuff, puking from pain from the leg. It's not even there anymore. It's something called phantom pain. You have horrific pain in the missing limb sometimes. He said, I cry. I cry like a baby. <clears throat> and then I dry my tears, and I go see my boys, the guys. And I talk to them, and they support me, and we support each other. He said, so don't tell me I don't feel pain or I'm avoiding the pain. I remember the pain real well. But Doc, if you want to help me, you get the orthopedic surgeon in here because I want that runner's prosthetic. And by the way, get the VA guy in here because I'm going to go back to school and I want to know what my benefits are and blah, 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 blah. Two soldiers, each with essentially the same horrific injury and trauma and 180 degree separate responses. How the hell do you account for that? Well, it's something called resilience. That as we started to study this trauma, we started to then say, that's the difference. That we see resilience in that Superman bit. And we were not seeing resilience in the guys that wanted to lay in bed and die. What is resilience? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It is not what a lot of people think some superhuman, cool under fire, uh, never doubting, never upset kind of a characteristic. It ain't like that. That's in the movies. When you're in a terrible situation, you get panicked. It takes a while to learn how to operate in those things. So that, that ain't it. It's not an inability to feel fear or to not be scared and all like that. It ain't John Wayne movies. It ain't like that at all. In fact, guys, resilience requires experiencing adversity. Isn't that weird? Going through hard things and learning a set of skills to handle the hard things. <clears throat> and that's what resilience is. It turns out it's a specific set of skills and assets that people can learn <clears throat> and use to handle adversity. Um, if you think about those two, two vets, they're like boats on an ocean, right? And a huge wave swamps both boats, and they both go under. One of the boats continues down to the bottom, completely swamped, overwhelmed, finished. The other boat goes under. It takes the hit, but it bobs back up. That's a good way to think about resilience. It's emotional buoyancy. It doesn't mean bad stuff never happens. It means you're able to take the hit, hit the floor, get back up, and get back in the game. That's essentially what resilience is. Resilience can actually now be described as the vaccine against things like anxiety, depression, and suicidal thinking. Um, the great news about resilience is it is not, another thing we thought, a genetically inherited trait. It ain't there. It's actually a learned set of skills Meaning we can foster those things in our children as parents and as educators and therapists and everybody that interacts with a kid. We can start building those skills pretty much on the trip home after the delivery at the hospital. It's like a lifelong 
way of thinking about Aaron. But before I get into all that, a couple of points of business. Yes, this is the ugliest tie you've ever seen in your life. You guys are much too polite. Nobody asked me about the tie. That's amazing. Anybody know these characters on the tie? Who are they? Rocky and Bullwinkle. Very good. Okay, Rocky and Bullwinkle, my hero. So what's the, how does his wife let him leave the house looking like that? There's a story, of course. My son Ross, who just got married, thank you, uh, who's 28. And when uh, Ross and I were best buddies until I had that massive stroke, did you, did you have that massive stroke? So we were best friends. He really liked me. Yeah, he thought I was funny. He thought I was like smart, thought I knew stuff. He even thought I was a little athletic back in the day. Seriously, he thought I was something. And then I came down to breakfast one morning and he's dressed in black. He won't look at me. He won't answer my questions with words. He'll answer them with, jeez, and storm away. So I turned to my wife and I said, I, I must have had a massive stroke because I'm another human being now, I'm like the dumbest guy he's ever seen. So those were our dark days. You ever go through the dark ages with a teenager? Yeah, but they do come back. We'll talk about that. But in any event, that Christmas, uh, we have a big Christmas gathering. The family gets together. And he presented me with this tie in front of the family. And the story was he had to scour the city of Philadelphia to find a tie that would match my taste in clothing. <laughs> yeah, everybody laughed at my expense. Yeah, don't feel bad for me. Ever since. I wear it everywhere I go. <laughs> it's on the Today Show, and the guy said, you know, Dr. Bradley, your tie's giving a, a problem. And I said, yeah, I know. My son Ross picked this out. Isn't this a great tie? It passed the silly law. You can't beat him up anymore. So I find sarcasm is a nice substitute, so feel free to use it. <clears throat> and I will beg your pardon in advance for swinging on the water. The voice is a little bit doing a fair amount of speaking, but we will get through the evening. My daughter's comments notwithstanding. Sarah uh, is our adopted daughter. Uh, we're foster parents in Bucks County, and she was in the fostering program. She, no joke, had horrific PTSD. Uh, she was born cocaine and opioid addicted. Um, she was abandoned. She was in four foster homes before we got her in the first year of her life. She was returned as unmanageable because she would just scream all the time. And we think she was almost starved to death in one of the homes when we got her. She wasn't even on the height and weight charts. I mean, not on the height and weight charts. Yeah. So, welcome to the world, first year of life. So, incredible trauma, right? So, she would always react severely to things, such as when I would leave on a speaking trip, particularly if I was flying, but going away for a while. So she would get kind of freaked out. So I'd always snuggle her down to sleep before I left. And one time I snuggled her down to sleep and she turned to me and said, Daddy, are you going to die soon? And I'm thinking, here we go, the trauma stuff, PTSD and all the news, you know, all the shootings and all this stuff triggers them. So I said, Sarah, honey, I don't think I'm going to die soon. I'm going to do everything I possibly can to try to keep that from happening. Okay? She said, okay. And I had to ask her the question. I said, Sarah, why did you ask me if I was going to die soon? And she said, well, Dad, because, you know, just like, look at you. <laughs> I can't make stuff like that up. Be very careful when you ask a teenager. They think you want the truth, right? Yeah, so my daughter's dark predictions 
notwithstanding, we'll see if we get through this. So I'm going to try to convince you about all this stuff, and then why I'd like you to think about doing some of the things I suggest in four parts. First, we're going to talk about the brain inside your teenager's head. Stop snickering. Yes, there is a brain there. No, it's not the brain for which you had hopes. And it turns out that teen brains are very much neurologically challenged structures. And I'll go over that. So you're dealing with kids who are actually brain damaged when we compare them to adult brains. I think you'll find that sort of interesting and help you understand a couple of things. Second, we'll talk about the world around our kids. Guys, this is a world that no joke qualifies for the term crazy. And that's not just an old fogey from Southwest Philadelphia talking. The research tells us this culture around our children is over the edge in ways that are terrifying. When I explain that to you, it's going to be what waiting up the time, particularly when we talk about what it's doing to our kids. The third part will be hopefully the empowering part, which is what the heck do you do about this stuff? And that's where we go over a set of strategies and tactics. In the military, we have an organizational paradigm. <clears throat> Supposedly, when we're going to do stuff, we start with a mission. What are we trying to do? We develop strategies, <clears throat> broad goals, what we're trying to accomplish, and tactics. The day-to-day, -day, if they do this, we do that, we do that, they do this sort of a thing. So we're going to give you that stuff, which hopefully gives you something to fight back with. And then finally, we get to the fourth and the best part of the evening, which is Q&A. Your questions, my answers. Uh, a couple of rules about Q&A. First, I am Irish by birth, not by choice. And in my family, Q&A stands for quarrels and arguments. So if you want to argue, if you want to say, you know, that's the dumbest thing I've heard in 30 years, feel free. <clears throat> I won't be homesick. That's the way I get talked to at my dinner table. Usually, when somebody says what you're saying makes no sense, either it means that I am not explaining it properly, or you know something I don't. And that's why I still do speaking, because everywhere I go around North America, Almost every time I, I find a nugget, you know what I mean by that? Somebody comes up and says something like, oh my God, I never thought of that. Or a piece of research or something that's going on. So feel free to quarrel and argue if you're so inclined. Oh, second rule, contrary to the myth, there is such a thing as a dumb question. <laughs> you all know what the dumb question is? So when you don't ask. That's really dumb in every sense of the word. Guys, ask the questions. If we don't have time to get to your question tonight, write me. I actually do respond right to the email on the website, and I will get back to you or Google it. There's a lot of good sources out there, too. There's an upside to the, to the internet stuff. So get answers to your questions. Okay. The first teen anti-resilience factor, and a huge one, is their own brains. Guys, the brains don't work so good. They're the result of neurologic changes that go on where Mother Nature tries to take that child brain and turn it into an adult brain, which is really amazing. Now, there's books just dedicated to that alone, and it's fascinating when you read them. As long as it's not your kid you're reading about. It's really interesting. So we do know that Mother Nature or God or whoever you blame for this mess has a sense of humor. Because he, she, or it starts in the back of the brain and works forward. What's in the back of the brain? A set of circuits that we call the child 
Right. And let me kind of explain this to you. Because you'll need this to get through what's coming. This is a diagram that oversimplifies, but gives you a working model to understand uh, essentially how our brains work in terms of personality. And this theory has been around for literally thousands of years, and now we have the brain scans that are telling us these guys were right, they really figured it out. We're not one person. This diagram represents what we call a mature or well-developed brain, supposedly in us grown-ups. Have you ever had an argument with yourself? Do you ever like wake up in the morning and think about something you should do and don't want to do? Anybody have any examples? Laundry, laundry. yeah, good one. <clears throat> Guys never say laundry, why is it? <laughs> yeah, laundry. So part of your brain says I really have to do the laundry. Another part of your brain says what? I don't want it. And then the first part of your brain says what? Why should you do the laundry? Because people need clothes. If I don't do this, they'll have nothing to wear. So they're two very different voices, right? Think about laundry, think about diet, think about exercise, think about going to work on a rainy, sleety February morning, Monday morning, that kind of thing. Yeah, right? They'll have that dialogue going on in their head. Well, when she wakes up, her brain that says, I should do laundry is what we call the adult brain. The adult brain is up front mostly. It's a series of circuits. But the adult brain is stunning, guys. It's amazing. It can organize memories as science or data. You've been through the experience of not doing the laundry. Nobody's got things to wear. You remember that in your adult brain. The adult brain can also think about the future and get this, can predict what will happen in the future with amazing accuracy and get this, can care about what will happen in the future. You laying away any money for retirement? That's nuts, that's way in the future. Why are you doing that? Your adult brain says, this is a good idea. I shouldn't spend this on golf clubs, I ought to lay it into the retirement account. I know I'm gonna need it one day. So the adult brain kind of does this data thing. It thinks about things and it runs equations. But you also have another brain, mostly in the back of the head, we call the child. What's the child brain? That's four years old. That's the part that says, I don't want it. And you're trying to say that I have to. And your child brain says, I don't want it. You ever have that debate in your head? Yeah, back and forth and back and forth. So it's a fight between two sets of circuits throughout the brain. On the top is what we call a parent brain. It does a bunch of things. One of the things it can do, though, is it can criticize you. It can have a lot of negative biases against you and other people. But that's where you kind of, you know, I knock over my coffee. You know what I hear in my head? What a freaking idiot. That's actually not the word that I hear. I hear another word. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. But in any event, <clears throat> I hear you're a freaking idiot. I'm not a freaking idiot, contrary to my children's opinion. I'm not a freaking idiot, but why does that happen? Do you ever have that happen? Call yourself names? Look in the mirror, you just can't stand the way you look, right? And you don't even have a daughter named Sarah to kind of uh, do this to you? Yeah, where does that stuff come from? Parent brain. We all have this, and by the way, that's okay. There's upsides to the child brain and the parent brain as well, but we always want the adult brain in the middle, monitoring things and making our decisions. Makes sense, right? 
So if when you're driving home, you pull out here on the on the road on Cheltenham Avenue, and some jerk cuts you off. He's got one of those monstrous SUVs, and he's real arrogant, right? And he cuts you off because you've got a little Volkswagen kind of thing. Well, when that happens, in your head, there's an amazing number of things that go off. The back of your brain says, I know, let's ride up on his rear end, let's hit the horn, let's go 100 miles an hour and get around and stop on the brakes, yeah, 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 throw fingers, right? Now, a lot of the women are saying, that doesn't work. he's crazy. <laughs> yes, it does happen, ladies, it does. You act like it doesn't, you're more disciplined than the men because of mental fist fight on the side of the road. But in any event, yeah. So all that starts to go off in the child brain, and the child brain is connected to the adult brain. There's a lot of wires here. And the adult brain hopefully grabs that and says, wait a minute, let's think about this. You know the guy's aggressive and arrogant. He's likely drunk. He's probably got a gun. Question, do we want to die over 10 feet of asphalt? Yes or no? Then hopefully your child brain advocates. You're not happy. Key point, you're not happy, but did you make the correct decision? Yeah. When you get happy, Later that night, I'm glad I didn't get arrested. I'm glad I didn't get into a fist fight. But in the moment, you can make the right decision and feel lousy. Is laundry fun? Is that a joyous thing to do? Yeah, you can hate it, but know it's the right thing to do. Why am I telling you all this? This is what we like to see as a mature brain. What are you dealing with with your teenagers? This. This. This diagram actually represents the amount of brain space that's dedicated to these functions and the level of activity in these functions. So huge child brain, in case you hadn't noticed that already, right? And also a huge parent brain, and that's the part you don't really hear a lot about. Teenagers hate themselves as a rule, particularly the girls. Particularly the girls. They're never pretty enough, thin enough, heavy enough. Athletic enough, the hair's wrong, nothing is ever enough. Women in general do that to themselves. Boys do it also less vehemently than the girls do, but it's there. Constant self criticism. So you're dealing with this brain, which by the way functions like a four year old child. Those are the functions, that's the capability of the child servant. That's what you deal with when somebody is in their child brain. Ever have a snap out? Ever deal with somebody who's completely freaked out? The guy that wants to fight you over the parking space? That's not a 50-year-old, that's a four-year-old, right? A runaway train of somebody that has lost the access to their adult brain. This is the essence of adolescence. Over time, Mother Nature starts helping the connections to get better, and also to increase the power, the volume of the circuits. That's the miracle. You guys, the veterans, you've seen it, right? The kid you thought was lost forever, just couldn't believe how stupid they were, how can you think like that, why would you do that? And then they come back and it's a young adult. When, after our dark ages day, Ross was away at college, and I got a phone call, I got off the phone, and I was stunned. I called my wife and I said, I don't know how to tell you this. She said, who died? I said, well, nobody died. Our son called me up and wanted to know what I thought. 
of something he was thinking about doing. <laughs> and I didn't know what, I wanted to savor the moment. Because <laughs> he actually thought I knew something. Yeah. So his adult brain was coming online and said, I need more information. And he was willing enough to humiliate himself in front of me to ask me a question. So they do come back as these brains stabilize. So when does this stuff start? When do the brain changes begin from a true child brain to the adolescent brain? We used to say it was 14, 13, and it seems every time we run the numbers, it gets younger and younger, and we're not quite sure why. Some people see this stuff at age 11 now in the girls. By the way, who starts down this path before uh, the other, the girls or the boys? The girls. They go through these brain changes where the child brain just starts to get wired in and gets incredible power about 18 months ahead of the boys. But they're always ahead of the boys in that sense. They're always about two years, a year and a half, two years ahead of the boys. First of all, parents, if you've raised both, who do you think are harder to raise, boys or girls? What would you say? <laughs> well, that was quick. Yeah, girls, it's true. We, I was part of research. We interviewed parents who raised both, and 92% of parents who raised both said girls are harder to raise. One dad in particular I interviewed, and he said, let me think about this. When my son was 14, he was a maniac. He used to explode. He punched a couple holes in the wall. And, actually kicked the door off the jam one time, and then our daughter turned 14, and boy, did we miss our son. <laughs> Why is that? It's because girls are smarter than boys in lots of ways, socially, emotionally. And by the way, mothers and daughters, a couple of, you know, tear, I always see tear-tracked faces in the audience, and I know you just had a river roar with your teenage daughter. Mothers and daughters, the most powerful relationship on the face of the planet much more powerful than any other of the relationships, father-son, mother-son, so forth. And they're closer when they're young. You will be closer when they're older, but you pay heavenly dues to get there throughout <laughs> their adolescence. So boys and girls are different in conflict. Boys have these tremendous explosions, as the dad said. You know, they will kick holes in the ball and all that kind of stuff. Girls are a little different with the way they handle conflict. I had a great example. Uh, one mom was having a terrible battle with her daughter <clears throat> and then just said, no, you can't go down the shore with 13 guys. I'm not doing that. Sorry. <laughs> it's all the radical moms, you know, real protective. And she fell a couple, you know. In any event, she said the daughter just kind of flipped the switch and said, this is in the morning. Okay. The mom said, you're okay with that? The daughter said, sure. And mom left, went to work, you know, she has a professional job, so she has to dress up and all the silly stuff. She used to love to come home and get into her comfy clothes. She runs upstairs to put on her comfy clothes. And one of her passions was shoes, you know, racks of shoes. She opened her closet door to find every left shoe was missing. Yeah. See, the men are saying, well, what's he talking about? And the women are horrified. <laughs> if you want to really injure a woman, steal every left shoe. See, a boy would never think of that. Boys are not that well organized. They don't get it. Seriously. The other thing is girls can hold grudges for a long time. You know, girls cannot talk to you for a week. They're that disciplined. Seriously. Boys have a big blow up with them. They'll come downstairs an hour later and say, 
I'm really pissed off at you, and I just can't remember why, but I know I'm really angry, and what do you got to eat? So, it's just like, oh, right? yeah. so they're very different in conflict resolution. <clears throat> and they're also very different in pairing. It's very difficult. Ladies, do you remember being in sixth grade in a co-ed classroom? And boys and girls, right? And do you remember the poor teacher was trying to teach? And what were the girls mostly doing? They were mostly listening, remember? Taking notes, answering questions, remember that? What were the sixth grade boys doing? Yeah, exactly. Spitballs, cursing, spitting on the floor, and all that stuff. Passing degrading notes around, yanking hair. Ladies, do you remember looking around that classroom and getting that sinking feeling that you'd have to one day pick a mate out of that gym pool? <laughs> Sixth grade boys weren't looking so good. So where did you start to hang out? Outside the eighth grade classroom, right? Weren't the eighth grade boys looking a lot better to you? Yeah, so parents from forever scream at the daughters, why do you have to date older guys? They ain't older. When you put the brain scans up, that eighth grade boy and sixth grade girl are much more similar. It evens out later in life. So there's another mystery uh, solved through science. So when this stuff hits, how do you know that it's hit? Usually the first clue is they get a tad moody. Have you noticed that? Yeah, you're previously stable, reliable, predictable, never angry daughter is in the kitchen, you're in the family room watching TV, and you hear your daughter maybe having a seizure or something because she's cursing and banging things and stomping the floor and slamming the pantry door, and you've got, what, $5,000 worth of food in the pantry? And she's saying there's... Well, you've heard this before, huh? And because it's your first kid, you're dumb enough to get involved in that conversation. <laughs> It's okay, you'll learn. You'll figure it out. It's like cops, you know, a bar fight. Wait till they're exhausted. We'll go ahead and look at So, yeah, so you go in. He's like, honey, 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 calm down, calm down. What's the problem? There's nothing to eat. All you have is food for my creepy little brother. You never get anything I like. Just take it easy, sweetie. We'll find something. Look, we've got tuna fish. You love tuna. I'll make you a nice plate of tuna fish. What do you say? I don't kill living creatures to sustain myself. <laughs> Killed a hell of a lot of them last week. That was last week. I'm a militant vegan. Oh, okay, that's cool. I respect that. That's hard to do. That's really cool. Let's take a look, sweetie. Pasta. Get, look at this. Vegan pasta. Approved by the Vegan Council. What do you say? Make a nice bowl of pasta. You know where this is going, don't you? Yeah. Make a nice bowl of pasta. 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 Oh, I know what you want. You want me to eat lots of pasta so I won't have a boyfriend. I hate you. I hate you. Ah, ah, bang. <laughs> what is that? That tells you welcome to the stuff. It has begun. That's the brain changes, the onset. The next thing that happens is they get a tad impulsive. They'll do and think and say things you just can't believe they're doing. Just can't believe they're doing. My classic was the boys, well, dad came home to find his son unexpectedly home with his friends. They were 14. And dad had just gotten this, it was used, but it was beloved SUV, this giant Escalade, Cadillac, you know, huge thing. And he said it was ivory. That was the color, metallic ivory. He just loved it. And he used to come home at lunch and polish his Escalade because he never had a cool car and he just 
Anyway, so he sees the boys are in the house, and he says, what are you guys doing here? And then he realizes the Escalade is not in the driveway. He said, where's the Escalade? And the son says, well, uh, it's out back. He said, what are you talking about out back? And he said, well, we were at lunch, and, and you know, we were talking about your new Escalade, and I was telling the guys, it's really cool, you know, it's just like a Jeep. It can afford streams and everything. It's got four-wheel drive, and, and Dad's getting the sinking feeling, and the kids, <coughs> Dad said, where's the Escalade? And the kids pointed out back, and Dad went out back to find the Escalade halfway through the stream behind the house, sitting there. And then he comes back in to confront his son, and he asks him the dumbest question in the world, which is, yeah, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? If the kid is honest, you know what they'll say? <laughs> Child brain, bang, zoom, impulsive behavior, uh, does not have access to the adult behavior. What could go wrong with this, right? And that's what you deal with. It's just part of the package. Now, you guys, because you're in this wonderful school, and this is a fabulous school, your kids can be a little deceiving because they tend to be better than the average. And they can seem to be a lot more grown up, and they can put on periods of time that you're thinking, hey, we're, we're fine, we're doing really well with this. But you know the veneer on that kid is about that thin. And it can melt down, crack, go away in the New York minute. This is what we're all dealing with. Some kids manifest it more than others, but you have to have this picture in your head that's the brain that you're dealing with. The second anti, oh, the other thing that happens is, have you noticed that they sleep a little later than the rest of the world? Yeah. Their brain, actually, because of this kind of renovation that's going on, causes them to stay up later at night. Do you know how many hours of sleep your teenager is supposed to be getting? Well, some kids do need 12. On average, 9 to 10. Some need 11 to 12. Some skate by on 8. They do okay. Do you know what the average sleep of an American teenager is on a school night these days? Six hours. That's a tad under six. 5.7 hours. Ladies and gentlemen, think of that one thing. We're cutting your sleep by, two -third, by a third. They're getting two-thirds the sleep they need. If you read about sleep science, the frightening thing is, if you are short of sleep on Monday night, you're two hours short, and then on Tuesday night, again, you get not enough sleep, you're short another two hours on uh, the next day, no, you're short four hours. And the next day, six hours. It's cumulative, it's called sleep death. And if you read what happens in sleep, there's nothing more important that you will do today than sleep tonight. That's where everything gets rebuilt, renovated, cleaned up, detoxified, literally. The more we understand sleep, the more worried I am about this. I know, let's do a little experiment. Drive the point home. Let's do psychobals on all you guys tonight. We've got a team of psychologists out there. Going to do some tests. And then we're going to come back in three months and we're going to reevaluate you. And, oh, I forgot the key part. For the next three months, I want you to cut your sleep by a third every night. Some of you, God forbid, you've got young kids, so you're lucky to get six hours. I want you to get four hours of sleep every night for the next three months. We're going to come back and retest you. How do you think you're going to be? 
little ADHD, little depressed, anxious, maybe even suicidal. So exhausted, you feel like you don't want to live anymore. Yeah, reactive, yelling, snapping out. Yeah, think about it. Well, that's what goes on with teenagers. When I become king of the world, still waiting for the phone call, the first edict will be all teenagers get nine to 10 hours of sleep. And it will put a lot of psychologists out of business. Because a lot of what we diagnose, uh, therapize, and treat with very powerful medicines that we worry about is actually sleep insufficiency. Sleep insufficiency. So if you want to know more about that, ask me questions at the end. But the key factor in getting kids who have issues doing better is to get them to sleep. You know, they go away to these treatment programs you read about, and you're fantasizing about sending your darling off to this place. You know why the kids get better? Because they sleep. They take away their screens. Lights go off at 9 o'clock at night. It's so freaking boring, they go to sleep. <laughs> In the morning, they get up. Yeah, they get their 10 hours, and then they eat food, like real food, because they're hungry, because they went to sleep at the right amount period of time. And they're forced to get up and move around to get some exercise. They're forced to eat stuff that's green and leafy once in a while. If they don't eat it, the cook says, fine, don't eat it. You can eat it or not, but you ain't got nothing else. So it's like going into the military. Suddenly, wellness is proscribed. Your sleep is regulated, you typically eat well, you have to exercise or they kill you. So, and you get really like amazingly on point. That's why these kids get better in the programs. So if we have time, we'll talk about tricks to get your kids sleeping more. Uh, the key thing to know about when the child brain is that big, the reward circuits are huge. Reward circuits, what are they? The things that give you payoffs for stuff like from drugs, or coffee, or sex, or the Eagles winning the Super Bowl and screaming and yelling. You get these rewards. And in teen years, you have reward circuits you will never have again. All of those things are wildly reinforcing to the teen brain, especially, especially the drugs, which we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. Um, next thing that's killing their resilience is the world world around them, which you and I are really responsible for. See, everybody talks about these kids are so hideous and they're self-centered and narcissistic. And they're not upright and moral the way we were, right? Anybody want to argue that one? Because I have your parents all out in the hallway and we'll bring them in and say, did she tell you that? Let me tell you some stories. You know, the difference, the reason why we see so many more crazy behaviors is the world around the kids. It is a world that actually promotes stress and anxiety in specific ways. One thing you need to know about stress, guys, before we move on, is that stress is not all bad. Everybody keeps saying you have to reduce stress. That's not true. See, if you think of, remember bell curve? Do you remember in math classes we talked about a curve where data falls out along a bell? If you think about that bell curve, Across the horizontal axis, we have level of stress. And the vertical axis has things like mental health, happiness, productivity. Everybody with me? It turns out stress works like a bell curve. 
Up here, we have excessive, crazy stress. You have tremendous levels of anxiety, depression, and suicidal thinking. Down here, we have almost no stress. Everybody's happy, right? Almost the same levels of anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts. The two ends of the spectrum. In other words, too much and too little stress can kill us. The sweet spot is at the top of that bell curve. If you think about it, doesn't that make sense to you? I mean, if you're competitive, if you're an athlete, you want to have a tennis match with some kid you know you can blow off the court. It's like, eh, you know. And you want to go up against a Wimbledon pro? It's like, oh, good. The one that's interesting is the guy that you're not sure you can beat. Well, this guy's really good. You know, I don't know. Then it becomes a game, and you get activated. You get engaged in it, right? So having the proper amount of stress is key, guys. Finding the sweet spot is a trick for all of our kids. And that's a tough parental judgment. So the idea is not to back off all stress. Sometimes when kids are in crises, a lot of therapists, unfortunately, just say, okay, you know, don't do school, you're done, you're just gonna homeschool you, and we're gonna do cyber school or whatever, and that's a disaster. It's a disaster, because every kid, all of us, have to be engaged using our assets in the world. So the answer is not to get rid of all stress, it's to try to be sure you're in the sweet spot of stress. So what are the biggest new stressors that are hitting our kids? Excessive expectations and screams. What are excessive expectations? That has to do with athletics and academics. And here's where I start the fights with the parents. Guys, back in the day, I played a couple of sports. I, I would never have a shot of making any team here at this place because your kids have been prepared for this since they were four years old. A lot of them in these training programs, almost all year round. Your kids playing sports here, they are what used to be college level players when I was in high school. Really, really good, amazing. But I couldn't make the team. I wouldn't have a shot at doing that. And that hurts a lot of kids who do not have a lot of native talent or they didn't get to go to all the training programs, but there's no way they can compete because all schools are so competitive. The second stressor is academic overload with things like AP courses. Guys, a, the head of the college board, you know, the SAT folks, the guy who makes a tremendous living often says, don't do AP courses. First of all, colleges, more times than not, don't even accept the credits. They're in the business of charging tuition for courses. And suddenly you find out it didn't give you much of an advantage. And the time these things suck up, I think, takes time away from what kids are supposed to be doing, which is figuring out who they are, their purpose and passion in the world, not memorizing volumes of history dates and facts. It's a trade-off. And these kids have been pushed into these things. This started uh, a couple of decades ago group of economists did a study, and they said, oh no, you, you have, kids have to go to elite colleges, and the way to do this is these advanced program AP courses. That's how you get into the elite colleges. And it set off this firestorm where everybody had to get their kids into gifted programs and into AP courses and so forth. 
Uh, two of that team of economists wrote an apology letter a couple of years ago saying, oh my God, we were so wrong. When we looked at these elite colleges, we didn't realize it's not the college, it's the kid. When they said this is a path to happiness and success in life. And they went back and they found that the kids who got accepted at the Harvards and NYUs and went to, God forbid, a state school like Temple, did at least as well and maybe better. Guys, the research shows that pounding kids with these excessive academic expectations either does nothing good or it's a diminishing return. They lose ground and they get ill because they're not built for that kind of stress. Some kids are, I call them the West Pointers, like amazing. They do get by on four hours sleep and they're just always energetic and really into it. Most kids are not built for that kind of stuff. They're just not built for it. So be very, very careful about what you emphasize. We'll talk some more about that in a minute. And then finally, the screens. The screens have changed everything. And we had no freaking idea of what we unleashed when we handed kids these screens. No idea. I can tell you now definitively, most experts are saying, if you haven't given them screens, don't. Did you know that all the people making all the money off of screens, Silicon Valley, did you see that piece in the New York Times? They won't allow screens in the kids' hands. They're disconnecting cable TV. They do not give the kids phones. They'll give them the dumb emergency phone, but no texting, no internet access. You know the elite schools are now backing back from computerized assets for kids. They're going back to God forbid books because the research is saying we may have made a huge mistake on this. The screens, they've taken all the stressors that break down resilience from forever. You had it. Were you stressed by things like sex and drugs and acting out behaviors and all that stuff back in the day? Yeah. But you did not have the weapon delivery system that that stuff has today. You were dealing with muskets. Your kids are dealing with machine guns. When we talk about the pounding that they get 24-7. Question. Can that pounding, things they see and things they hear, can that really influence behavior? We used to say, no, you know, it's, it's not that easy. Just hearing stuff and seeing stuff can't affect it. Wrong. AMA did a couple of knock, knockout studies. One was trying to find out why kids start smoking cigarettes. Kids are smoking less in general, good news, but kids still try them. And they're trying to figure out why the heck the kids experiment with it if they know it's so bad they try to avoid getting addicted. Well, you know what turns out to be the best predictor of a kid trying cigarettes? We used to say it was parents who smoke, peers who smoke, socioeconomic class. It's none of those things. Now, today, it's how frequently the kid sees a screen figure lighting up a cigarette. How frequently they see a screen figure lighting up a cigarette. How much more of a factor? Threefold. Kids that see lots of on-screen smoking of about three times the rate of smoking initiation than kids who see little or none. It was a stunning finding. Second, they did another study about sexual violence against females, in case you haven't noticed or heard. Sexual violence against young females has also exploded. It's gone swampers. There's always been sexual violence against females. We've never seen these rates before. Guess what they found was in a direct correlation with the rise of sexual violence against females. Lyrics.
kids that listen to lyrics that are sexually explicit, they're all sexually explicit, but that are misogynist, you know, women are second-class citizens, use them, throw them away, beat them, put them in the trunk of the car, and sexually violent, about beating them, manhandling them. Kids that listen to those lyrics are like 2.5 to 2.7 times more likely to be victimized by sexual assault, mostly females, or to be a perpetrator of sexual assault, mostly males. Lyrics. See the kids walking around with the earbuds? You know what they're hearing, do you? See, we never ever thought about this. We really had no idea. And now people in my business are saying, oh my God, there's a whole national movement called Wait Till Eight. Have you seen that one? You should sign up. It's on the internet. And it's a pledge saying, I will not give my kid a screen till at least eighth grade. And a lot of us think it should be older than that. It should be viewed as driving a car because the brains are not able to handle this stuff. The child brain brings this in and takes it as prompts that these are ways to be in this world. And this stuff is very effective. There's some other 50-year data I want to cover that will help you understand some of the differences. Because a lot of people go through the seminar up to this point, and somebody, <laughs> the Raven up in Q&A, will say, you know, this is hogwash. These kids are snowflakes. There's only more anxiety and depression because you guys look for it as psychologists. And because these kids are so delicate. No, they're not snowflakes. They're doing exactly what you and I would have done if we were growing up in their world. Exactly the same. I make the half joke, and I almost did not survive my adolescence on more than one occasion. Guys, I can honestly... You know, swear on the Bible. I'm pretty sure I would not be here today if I grew up in your kid's world. Because I was a lunatic. I was nuts. And to think about having to deal with this stuff, I'm saying, I don't think so. I don't think I would have made it through. I'm amazed at the kids that do make it through. And that's a whole new focus of study, which also brought us back to this issue of resilience. The kids that seem to handle this stuff okay. Um, other 50-year data, a woman named Jean Twenge, an associate of mine, who I hate because she's so smart, she came up with this idea about studying tests that we've used from forever, questionnaires and all that stuff, and comparing answers of kids 50 years ago with the answers of kids recently to see if there's differences, right? Smart, I hate smart. So I stole all of her stuff and stuck it in the book. <laughs> One of the things she found is, believe it or not, kids today feel less control over the outcome of their lives than kids 50 years ago. How could that be? You give your kids everything, right? Fabulous school, cars, all the educational helps they could possibly want, you know, great houses. Did you grow up in a house and the lifestyle you provided for your kid? I don't think so. But they feel less control? Isn't that wild? Yeah. <clears throat> I remember sitting in the park with the boys, and we would talk about what we were going to do. I remember feeling essential control over my life. Guys were, you know, I'm going to join the military and save the world. I'm going to be a cop. I'm going to be a firefighter. I'm going to get a job at Westinghouse because they have a union, and you can make a living wage and support a family. Back in the day, kids had a sense of control. Today, kids tell us life is a crapshoot. 
that most kids say, we really do not have any control. Stuff happens. That's an awful way to live life. If you don't feel you have essential control, that's a prescription for anxiety and depression and thinking, maybe I don't want to live anymore. Second, we used to ask kids about what their goals were. What is this about, you know? The whole concept of life. You know what they used to say, mostly? They would say things like, I'm going to do something important. You know, I'm going to do something to help people. I'm going to be somebody, you know, and it didn't mean making a lot of money. Often it meant a life of essential poverty to the military or a cop back in the day. But that's what they talked about. Today we ask kids, what is it all about? And what do they tell us mostly? The money. The money. Once a month, I have a kid come in and tell me his plan to get a six-figure salary the day he graduates college or he's a failure. And they do. It's their whole life, and they are crushed if they don't get that. You have kids that come home, crashed and burned, back in the parents' basement, smoking dope, playing video games, because they didn't walk into a six-figure salary. Oh, my God. Uh, they talk about three-car garages. They talk about lots of women. They talk about, you know, play hard and leave a good-looking corpse and all this stuff. Their goals have migrated from what used to be intrinsic, stuff you did to feel good, to extrinsic. He who dies with the most toys wins. Grab all the stuff you can. That's on us. We've allowed this materialistic view of things to really take over. When I walked in here tonight, the guys were walking in from uh, you know, homeless outreach. And I, you know, I wanted to hug them, have to control myself. That stuff is gold, as we talk about resilience a little bit later. Getting out of your own bubble, the Disney world most of us live in, and seeing the world that most people in this, on this planet live in, really important. They're less spontaneous and interdirected. We structure their time. Guys, there is not an enrichment program that will teach your kids as much as boredom. We don't let them get bored. If you've got the screens away from them, let them get bored. Boredom is the genesis of creativity, of organization. Remember back in the day, if you said to your parents, I'm so bored, what would they say? Oh, yeah, I'll tell you, outside, back in, yeah, Southwest Philadelphia, they would throw us out. And I am not making this up. We were thrown out and in the summertime at 8 o'clock in the morning. We sort of got fed and then, like, don't come back until dinner time. And we did, we, you know, seriously. Well, I don't necessarily advocate that as a parenting model, but you sure as hell learned a lot. You had to make stuff up. You had to negotiate with the jerks and the bullies and the crazies. You had to figure out how to survive. Incredible set of skills. A lot of parents shoot down their kids' crazy ideas. Like my son Ross wanted to be a heavy metal. He actually is. He's a teacher. And he's also a heavy metal musician. That God forbid pay him to make these noises. Anyway, so I take my shots back at him. Um, yeah, and I was really happy he did that versus go to the Johns Hopkins Summer Science Program. Why? You ever try to hold a band together? You know what's involved in actually getting a band? Managing all those crazy kids, the personnel, planning, strategizing, budgeting, all that stuff, incredible amount of learning, because we would step back and let him take the lead. He wasn't into the screens, thank God. But he learned a hell of a lot. So we overstructure their time. 
and they learn how to respond, they can be great athletes, they can be great students. I had a CEO tell me about uh, watching his hires, and he used to hire the best of the best of the best, you know, the top 1% of 1% of 1%, Stanford, NYU, Caltech. And he realized that those people, he actually told me a story about a crisis in the company, and he had a war room, like one of these huge Bloomberg model things, and he was watching his best of the best, and he was watching a kid that had problems. He was a C student, went to college, at a state university, and he just liked the kid. The kid had some brushes with the law, and he watched these two sets of people. The kid that had the brushes, that had the difficulties in college, was running from station to station, sleeves rolled up, tie down, trying to get information, communicated, and people were rude to him. They said, get out of here, you're a newbie, you don't know what you're doing. And he would just go on to the next table, what can I do, these guys are talking about that. And then he looked to his best of the best. What were the best of the best kids doing? Sitting at their desks, waiting for the next syllabus. Waiting to be told what to do. Tell us what to do, we'll memorize it, and we'll regurgitate it. But don't ask us to create. Don't ask us to jump in. We don't do that. Do you understand, guys? Be very careful when you overstructure. The next thing is they're much less self-reliant, she found. Much less self-reliant. Why is that? We don't let them fail. God forbid our kid fail. When Ross was in middle school, he got attracted to the gifted program. He was super bright, probably a genius. I don't recommend it, but super bright. And he came home one day and he said uh, at dinner table, I just want to tell you guys that uh, I intend to not cooperate with my social studies program. <laughs> and I just thought you should know that. I've been researching this and I've decided that social studies is actually governmental mind control program. <laughs> that's been put together by rich white guys like you to, make, to maintain your position in this society. So Cindy is also my wife is in the business is trying not to laugh and we catch each other's eye and we said, okay, all right, well, if that's what you want to do, is it, you're okay with that? Hey, you're a young man, you got to make these decisions. And hey, I, I share a lot of what you're saying and that's cool. You're talking about something called civil disobedience, right? So that's right. Good, make a stand. I like that. But have you read Martin Luther King? He said, Well, I don't know, I know who he is. I said, Well, you should read his stuff. Because he says civil disobedience only works if you pay the price for disobeying. So, what that means, son, is when we get the call from the school, we're going to hand the phone to you. <laughs> it's your problem. You're going to handle it, right? Yeah, okay. So, cool. Well, we get the inevitable phone call at the end of the marching period, and it was 9 o'clock at night. And the teacher, this poor guy, we live in a great school district, by the way, and he's got the shadow, and he's exhausted, and his eyes down. And he said, I just want to call you guys in because I have to talk about Ross's grade. And he said, all right, what is it? And he says, like, he's apologizing. Well, if I did it by the numbers, you know, he would, uh, he'd be getting an F. And he looks down at the floor. And Cindy and I said, well, what did he earn? He said, well, you know, he's got a thing about social studies. And we said, yeah. What did he earn? He said, well, he earned an F. I said, great, give him an F. The teacher said, you're okay if I give your son an F. I said, absolutely. He said, well, you know, this will get him out of the gifted track. This means he will not be in that pipeline for AP courses and so forth. He said, hey, I'm cool with that. That's fine by me. And this guy puts his pencil down, 
And he pushes back on his desk and he said, I just have to tell you, I've been teaching here nine years in this school district, and you are the first set of parents that did not argue for a better grade for their child. The first set of parents that did not argue for a better grade for the child. Think about that. <clears throat> parents won't accept failure. They'll lawyer up. Seriously. A lot of teachers quit giving kids bad news because the parents will come in with a lawyer. They'll go to the principal. They'll go to the board. They'll create holy hell. And the teachers finally say, eh, whatever. Do the same with cops. I had a conversation with a cop saying, why don't you go to the house and explain to them this kid shouldn't be doing that. The cop laughed. He said, where are you from? I said, well, you know, I think they'd be impressed, right? They're trying to save the kid a problem. He said, man, they would throw me off their front porch. They'd be calling their lawyer for a violation of their civil rights. If I don't have a warrant, so we don't do that anymore. I'm, oh my God. Nobody's allowed to give negative feedback to a kid. Well, with Roth, we came home that night and he's waiting for us. He says, what did he say? What did he say? And we said, well, he really likes you. He thinks you're really smart. Yada, yada, you know, and all that stuff. Yo, what's my grade? So what are you getting at? An F. Well, yeah, man, remember? Well, didn't you talk to him about it? He said, yeah, we told him, give you the F. <laughs> what? And he runs up to the room, and he slept like a couple of hours and two nights. He wrote this amazing paper, and he rushed it into the teacher on the Monday morning, ambushed him in the parking lot, said, read this, read this. Defending his position that social studies is a governmental mind control program and a rich white guy like me to maintain my status in society. Well, the teacher, you know, he's a nice guy, he took it and he read it. And he says, Ross, this is amazing. This is, in fact, I would like to submit this to some journal for publication. Because this is, you know, people talk about this. This is really well done. And Ross said, great, I get an A. He just said, no, you get an F. I didn't ask for this. <laughs> I asked for these 20 things. You didn't do them. This is really good, but you still get it now. Well, Ross made honors all the way through college because he got burned, he got furious, and then he figured out, okay, I can make a stand, I can make arguments about governmental mind control and still get good grades, right? What would he have learned if we threatened the teacher? Yeah, guys, that's a big piece of what we're seeing because it kills resilience, right? Remember I said, you got to get knocked down. You have to have the right amount of adversity to develop the skills, the assets, to get back up and back in again. So what is this doing to our kids? Here's a scary time. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Uh, I'll do this stuff quickly. You can find it all online. First of all, over 50 years, drugs have exploded. You hear these good news things where they're talking about changes from year to year with certain drugs, alcohol, marijuana, and so forth. But what you're missing is the hockey stick. It exploded, and then it's kind of stayed at about this level, which is very deceiving. When, you, when they run the numbers, they say, well, it looks like kids are kind of stable in things like weed use, but they're not accounting for these those things. Guys, the weed that you may have used, grew up with, that stuff was nothing compared to the weed the kids are using today. We should rename the drug. What you used was a third to a ninth as potent as what kids are using today. The impact is stunning. The bottom line is kids, teenagers, can't use any 
drugs because this is the way they're configured. Their brain is vulnerable and the reward circuits go squampers, squampers with ice cream, sex, eagles winning the Super Bowl, and drugs. A reaction adults don't get. They get addicted very quickly. A couple of points of data you need to know because you don't need to start, well, I'm happy to start a fight actually. Uh, a lot of parents are laid back with their kids doing weed. They're saying, well, at least he's not doing real drugs. Yes, he is doing real drugs. It is not what you think it is. It is deadly. Can you get addicted to weed? Absolutely, yes. Do you get dependent on it the way kids are dependent on heroin? No, it's a different thing. Dependency is when people crave a substance or they get sick and they don't have it. It can happen with weed, but not nearly as violently as with opioids or heroin. However, addiction is best defined by the price you pay to use. And we enslaves our children, little piece at a time. And they love the way they feel on it, and they eventually don't care about what it does to their lives. Is weed addictive? Yes. Is it a gateway drug? Yes. There is no debate about that. No debate. Weed warriors, feel free. I'd love to see your research. I don't know much about weed and adult brains. I don't study that. They study the hell out of drugs and teen brains. And every legitimate researcher says kids cannot use drugs, to include alcohol, by the way. Alcohol will do it. It's just harder to tolerate the high doses of alcohol that they can tolerate with marijuana. If you're not convinced, last 2017, a killer study came out, 417 pages. I read it. If you're having sleep problems, this will work great for you. But when we pulled the numbers out of this thing, from NYU, Columbia, and uh, National Center for Addiction. Uh, this is what it boils down to. If somebody first starts using a neuroaddictive drug like marijuana uh, regularly, that means once a week or more, everybody with me? Once a week or more. At different ages, there's different levels of risk. If at age 21, 25 kids get together and say, hey, we're 21, we can use legally, and we will be legal everywhere very shortly. Of those 25 kids that first start using, one will become a full-blown addict to something. Full-blown addict means they essentially lose their life, lose their family, lose their job, lose their money, lose their house. They just live to use the drug. You all got the picture? So one of 25, well, that's not too bad, right? What about a group of 18-year-olds of the 25 18-year-olds, three become full-blown addicts that first start to use. What about 25 16-year-olds? Of that group, six will become full-blown addicts to something because they're using once a week or more. And what about age 14? Ready for this one? Of the 25 14-year-olds, 17 become full-blown addicts. Would you like me to repeat the numbers? Guys, where did the opioid addiction phenomenon come from? Everybody says it's because big pharma pushed drugs. Well, they did. And the docs overprescribed. Well, they did. But do you know that opioids have been around forever? They've been around forever. You grew up with opioids. Do you remember an epidemic? Why is that? I remember when I got hurt in the military, they gave me the opioids. And I hated them. It was like, ugh. I hate this. I 
feel stupid, not to be gross, but they constipate you. It's like, I'll just put up with the pain, thanks. And lots of us had exposure to opioids, right? So why suddenly do we have this explosion of addiction? Because people pre-wired their brains over the past couple generations using a lot of weed or alcohol. So now we can see the missing link. It changes, it literally rewires adolescent brains, predisposes them to addiction. So how does that operate? A lot of these kids smoke that hell out of marijuana, you know, high school and college, and then they said, oh, you know, I gotta stop, gotta clean up, get a job, and they did. And they're doing fine, not addicted. And then they get an appendicitis, and the doc hands them, so they take these for seven days, and they pop the opioid, and bam, nirvana. Bizarre reward. Almost instantaneous addiction. Y'all got the picture? Guys, your kids can't use. I'm sorry. They cannot use. And we let that cat get out of the bag with these teenagers. They don't consider marijuana to be a drug. The good kids only do weed. That's what they tell me. I don't drink. I only do weed. Seriously. And then we start the debates back and forth. And they bring in their, quote, research. They are being victimized just the way my generation was by the cigarette guys. Remember those guys? Remember the seven dwarfs? Punch that one up on Google. That were swearing, well, we don't manipulate, we don't try to make people addicted to this stuff. Now, and uh, cigarettes can't hurt you. That's bogus. Cigarettes cause cancer? That's nonsense. They knew. They were lying SOBs. So do the people that are going into the weed business. They know that they're lying and they're setting up their children. Okay. Um, and finally, now that we're in a depressing area, the killer statistic kind of sums it up. This is as depressing as we'll get tonight. First of all, the rates of anxiety and depression, and this is clinical anxiety and depression, incapacitating, debilitating levels. These guys, the teachers, deal with every day. Marty's story, lined up at the door, first day back. Those numbers rival veterans coming back from hot zone deployments, same numbers. Anxiety and depression over 50 years is up 400 to 500% among teenagers. 400 to 500%, stunning. And it's just exploded over the past few years because of the stuff I'm telling you about. And finally, suicide has also exploded. 1952 is when we first started to collect data on suicide. From 1952, 2017, suicide in the general population is up uh, about 78%, which is like, wow, people do kill themselves a lot more. Everybody, adults particularly. Guys, among teenagers and young adults, that same research tells us that suicide is up 500%. To the point where if you come here tomorrow and click off every fifth kid walking down the hallway, had a kid that either attempted suicide over the past year or had a serious plan to suicide, meaning they didn't want to live anymore and they were thinking about offing themselves. They just had not yet selected a method or pulled the trigger. This is the epidemic we should be focused on, suicide. That tells us that life just becomes too difficult for these kids and they don't have the skills to handle. And finally, as parents, we're doing a lousy job of responding to this for a couple of reasons. 
One is, it's really hard to raise a teenager in case you haven't noticed, if you can't beat them. It's easy if you can beat them, but if you can't beat them, it gets really difficult to be able to try to get them through this stuff, right? Um, but the other thing is, we don't know what to do. Who was it that trained you to do this job? Which is a harder job, raising a teenager in the new millennium or flying the new 737? 737 is easy. Raising a teenager is really hard, really challenging, because nobody trained you to do this. And people don't know how to respond. And essentially, there's two schools of thought. One is they get tough folks, and the other is, oh, to, to kind of lay back and not do much. Well, they get tough folks talk about using fear, right? The problem is we coddle them. They're snowflakes. We should get in their faces. And by the way, most parents in America still hit their kids. Did you know that? Yeah, over 50%, probably like 55%, still smack, spank, throttle, push, jack up against the wall. We don't admit it because it's not legal in many states, but it still goes on. But a lot of parents, uh, the dads, when they say, you know, we're too soft on our kids, they'll tell me things like, oh, my drill sergeant slapped me around, and my football coach slapped me around, the Christian brothers slapped me around, every personal. Uh, and I, I admired and respected, my father slapped me around, and I admired and respected those men. So what's wrong with being tough? got to be tough for teenagers. So I always ask the dad that says that, well, sir, tell me about your father. And invariably, they'll say, well, the guy worked two jobs, he goes through college, you know, he you know, helped, coached everything, never had a decent pair of pants in his life, you know. And I said, great, that was a wonderful story. Sir, you just told me about the man's values and his character. You never told me about the hitting. You forgave the hitting. You overlooked the hitting, right? Think about guys who hit you when you were a teenager, and if you did admire and respect them, what was it you admired and respected? That they beat you up? Yeah. That the drill sergeant was trying to keep you alive. You figure that out. The Christian brothers back in the day were trying to keep you alive, keep you on the right path. That's what they thought was the way to do it. <clears throat> so a lot of us think that using fear is a way to get kids to build resilience and to be tougher and stronger and smarter in the world. So do you think that beating up a kid will help them do better in this world? Is fear a good way to deal with teenagers? Before you say no, what is fear? Fear is you fire up that child brain and it's afraid for its survival. It's in pain, it's intimidated. And that sort of worked back in the day. I'll tell you a great fear-based parenting expert is name was Peter Joseph Bradley. He was my Irish Catholic father. And back in the day, he heard us in his basement, as he referred to it, and we were listening to the devil's music, as he referred to it. Anybody want to guess what the devil's music was in 1967? I warn you, nobody gets this, but I'll try it again. Not the Beatles, not the Stones, not Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> My son thinks that's devil's music, but no, not that good. Not the dead. Not Zeppelin. I think I heard it. The doors. Would you stand up, please? Come on, stand up. Come on, come on, come on. 
the doors. Oh my god. Ooh, that's scary. Yeah. What's up? Are you there? I don't know. People are confused, the younger among you, because all you hear about the doors is their little love ditties. The doors were a sick bunch of puppies, in case you didn't know that. Go home. Be sure your kids don't see you do this and Google a door song. Original lyrics, 67, song called The End. Listen to the lyrics. I'm not going to tell you anymore. Listen to the lyrics. You will be stunned. In any event, my father was very worried about cultural props back then. He was ahead of his time. So he came downstairs to the basement, trademark cigar in mouth, and he lifts up the album, remember albums? And he smashes it on the record player, which is really effective, by the way. It's like shrapnel all over the room. <laughs> Then he takes a drag out of, and I'm not making any of this up, he takes a drag out of his cheap cigars, El Producto, takes a drag out of a cigar, and blows smoke in our wide-eyed faces, and we're all sitting there and trembling, and puts the cigar back in his mouth, hands on hips. And back then, the old man was, I don't know, 17 feet, 10 inches tall. Remember how big they used to look right then? So, and, and he was waiting for somebody to be dumb enough to say something, which we were not. Why is that? South of Philadelphia rules? You know the Southwest Philadelphia parenting rules? Anybody's parent can beat up anybody's kid? Yeah, but seriously, you didn't dare tell your parents because you got another round for whatever it was you were charged with. It sort of worked. Was that an effective parent intervention? You could argue yes. Why? How could you argue yes? Do you know what an album cost? in Southwest Philadelphia dollars in 1967. We were poor. I, we didn't know we were poor. It was, you know, nobody had a car, one pair of shoes. Nobody starved, but there was no discretionary income. We literally stole, begged and borrowed to get the money to buy the album. It was hard to find the album. We were all over the city. Nobody would carry the album. Why? For the same reasons that you couldn't hear that cut on the radio. They used to have these rules saying you can't play crazy stuff on public access sources because kids might hear it and be affected by it. How about that for a radical thought? Hello, civil libertarians. What do we do with this one? Yeah. It was possible to control a child's environment back in the day using fear-based tactics. That was the end of the Doors influence over me and my gangster friends, as he lovingly referred to them, for quite a while, seriously, right? How about tonight you go home and your daughter's listening to a horrible MP3 and you erase it from her, whatever. What is she going to do? Download it again and two more that are worse. Yeah. <laughs> I'm lying or flying. And you're never going to know. Right? Don't spare me your tech stories, okay? Your kids are much better at tech than the best tech expert you can possibly hire. They'll, they'll figure it out. They will out-tech you. Sorry. It just doesn't work. Guys, those are the rules from the last war. This is a new war. You have to use different strategies and tactics. What do we recommend? Something called respect-based techniques. What do they look like? 2004, my son is in my basement with his gangster friends. By the way, I got to do this seminar at the school he teaches at. I wouldn't let him come to the seminar. <laughs> and all the, all the teachers were running back to tell him all the dirty stories. It's furious. But in any event, 
So he's in my basement with his gangster friends, and they're listening to their devil's music. How do I know it's devil's music? Well, because it shakes the house. Boom, 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 boom. You know what I'm talking about. And when I go down the steps, it has this electrical problem. When I step on the top basement stair, it squeaks and it shuts off the CD player. And the CD player, the electrician can't find the problem. They keep saying, I got it right. Anyway, so, you know, I go down the steps. It squeaks, they shut off the CD player. What are the boys doing? Nothing. They're all standing there. Oh, oh, very slick, gentlemen. It said, guys, we need to turn that back on. They look at each other and I say, I don't want to know whose it is. I'm not taking your CD. So the price we pay is we'll all listen to it together, okay? And they look at each other and I turn it on. I'll spare you a lot of what I heard. But the key part was something I missed in my psychology of women courses, which is that women like to get beaten up. Yeah, it helps them feel cherished and loved. Wait, you women knew that, right? You like getting slapped around? Of course you knew that. It has to be true because I heard it on the CD player that these impressionable brains are drinking in. So I said to them, gentlemen, do you think that girls like to be beaten up? And they said, that's a stupid question. Why are you asking us that? Well, you guys are listening to this. I was wondering, what do you think about it? I don't know. I said, well, do you guys worry that what you see and what you hear can affect your behavior? Change the way you think? Nah. So really, I'll be right back. And I used to teach a course, and I brought a graph down that I would use. Remember all the days graphs? I said, look at this. Look at what causes kids to start smoking cigarettes. How frequently they see an on-screen figure smoke a cigarette. Well, it's just cigarettes. It's not like beating up a girl. Nothing will make anybody beat up a girl. Really? I'll be right back. And my other graph, which shows this correlation between sexual violence, and this was a long time ago. It was just starting. Now, it's an established, almost a direct correlation that goes through the roof. Stunning. So look, looks like guys and girls that hear lots of these lyrics get involved in sexual violence one way or another. What do you think? Ross hated it when I did this stuff. He's Irish. He's jumped up one time and said, why don't you just punch me in the face and get it over with? I said, Ross, I would love to punch you in the face and get it over with. That's God's honest truth. I can back up to my football game, I'll faster, I feel all manly. But again, teaching moment. I said to the boys, think about this for a second. If I beat up Ross for listening to this music in front of his friends, what would that do? Embarrass, enrage, humiliate him in front of his best friends? I'd be pushing him in the direction of that crazy person on the CD player I consider to be my enemy. I said to the boys, gentlemen, in the military, the first and the best lesson I ever learned was don't start a fight you cannot win. Don't start fights you can't win. Sometimes you have to fight. Never start a fight you can't win. So gentlemen, I can't win the fight with your culture. I wish I could. But your culture, boy, it has beaten me. It is over my wire, over my walls. It's in my camp. It's in my basement. I can't stop this stuff. Even if I took it, I know you guys would get it somewhere else. It would rain down on you. Gentlemen, I can't control what you see and what you hear. What I want to know is, what do you think about what you see and what you hear? And on that note, I've invited Ross's mother downstairs to enlighten us from a female perspective. <laughs> and now they go, ah, ah, ah. what am I doing? 
Guys, I can't control the culture. Sorry, neither can you. I know you got controls and you got tech and so forth. Good luck. If it helps you sleep at night, then do it. It ain't enough. You can't just control them. You have to go after their beliefs. Change a belief. You change a person. Change a person. You start to change a community. So if one of those boys was even thinking about this, yeah, maybe he's right, and then he's at the table, where, and you know about girls bragging about being bitch slapped? Do you know that one? You know, don't ever spy on your kid's texts, because you will be disgusted by what you see. Girls brag about being bitch slapped. Like it's a something, oh, he really loves me. He slapped me because I was talking to another boy. It's called bitch slapping. Yeah, badge of courage. So maybe after our little chat, one of these boys, hopefully my son, is at a lunch table where somebody's bragging about slapping his girlfriend around, and maybe the kid says, that ain't funny, man. That's cool, beating up a girl. Wouldn't that be something if somebody spoke up and people start to think? Guys, you can't control the world. You have to go after their beliefs. If you use fear, you lose access to their beliefs. If you use respect, as hard as it is, and be patient, then you get access to those belief systems. And that's the game. Okay. And I'm talking too much as usual. So uh, I gave you a couple of handouts that I'm going to have to ask you to study on your own. The first one is called the seven seeds of resilience. And if you look at those seven seeds, uh, those are the things that you want to view as overall strategies to use in parenting. And I gave you some specific suggestions with those. People always ask me, what's the most important C? The most important C is connections. Connections to other human beings. Connections between our hearts, our parental hearts to the child's heart. If you use fear, and by the way, fear doesn't mean you have physical contact. You can do, excuse me, fear-based parenting with words. And a lot of the research says the words are more damaging than the punches. The sarcasm, the denigration, the constant criticism, the never good enough stuff causes tremendous damage to these kids. Look it up. It is abusive. And I think it's actually more destructive. Because kids understand parents going crazy and snapping out, maybe slapping them for something they said or, said or did. They sort of get that. But the day to day to day to day, you're not good enough. I'm ashamed of you. That stuff, that's like being in a POW camp. You wear them down and you break them eventually. They all break. So connections are the key. What proof do I have aside from the research? Think about those two bets. Remember the two guys that each lost a leg and one bounced back in an amazing way? What was the biggest difference? Connections. Remember the second vet was reaching out, connecting with the fellow vets, bringing in his family, talking about his future, and engage with other human beings. The isolation is a killer when people withdraw into the bedrooms and the video games. Connections are the key. Second handout, the 10 C's of parenting. Those are the day-to-day -day strategies, the down and dirty what to do. What's the best 
commandments, you're going to remember one of them. The first one, thou shalt be as a dispassionate cop unto thy child in adolescence. What does that mean? It works like this. If you go through a stop sign and an angry cop pulls you over, sorry if I'm offending police officers, but you, you guys that are here that are cops, by the way, my car is a uh, white uh, suburban. Uh, <clears throat> the, the first cop is angry, he's having a bad day, pulls you over, and he's sarcastic and demeaning. and says, yeah, lady, you in a rush to get to school? Yeah, you're going to be a lot later now. And he laughs, and he goes back to his car, and he's sipping coffee, and you see the clock ticking, and you're a teacher, and he knows you're a teacher, and he knows what he's putting you through. And he comes back and tosses a ticket in the window. Says, uh, yeah, the gas pedal gets stuck, did it, lady? Sorry, that's Toyota's. And he laughs, walks away. So when you get home, what do you tell your partner about? Crazy cop, right? You're going to write a letter. This guy shouldn't have a gun. You know, it's incredible that he would do that. You tell your partner about going through the stop sign. Well, the next morning, you go through the same stop sign because you're so angry at the system. Another cop pulls you over. And her delivery is a little bit different. She says, Ms. Jones, I can see by your bumper sticker you're a teacher of LaSalle. I'll get you out of here as soon as I can. Ms. Jones, this is a dangerous intersection. You can't be going through stop signs. I'll be right back. She comes back and gives you the same ticket, same point, same fine, but she hands it to you and says, every three months I get to pick up body parts at this intersection. I'd rather not be picking up yours. Please think about this. It is indeed better to get there late than not at all. Hope the rest of your day is better than this. When she walks away, who are you mad at? You get the drill? Guys, this is what you have to do with your kids. This is the difference between punishment and consequence. Punishment is we hurt people because they're hurtful. How's that work out? Been to a prison? Study any of the numbers about prisons? You know, then we teach them how to be really, really good at hurting people. It doesn't work. The second cop used a consequence. She wasn't inventing a punishment. See, parents always ask, well, what's a proper punishment when a kid comes home drunk for the first time? Answer, there ain't any. There's no such thing. What do you do if your kid comes home drunk? When your kid comes home drunk the first time? Well, first of all, you don't parent at 2 in the morning you're terrified and exhausted and they're out of it anyway. By the way, be very careful. You have to monitor the kids. Drink. Kids are drinking tremendous amounts these days and they take stimulants so they can drink more, to look more macho, and I'm talking about the girls. The girls try to throw back drinks like the boys and they'll steal their brother's ADHD meds, which amps them up so they'll tolerate more alcohol until the ADHD med wears off, and then they go into alcohol toxicity. And all sorts of terrible things happen. So in any event, be careful. But if you think they've just had a few beers, do like the court. I know you're drinking, we'll talk about it tomorrow. You'll be a much smarter parent tomorrow. And besides, your kid gets to lie in bed all night and wonder what the hell you're going to do tomorrow. <laughs> so when she comes down to the breakfast table, do you yell and scream? No, try a question. Tell me what you learned. Say, what? Tell me what you learned. You might strike gold. She might say, well, actually it was pretty stupid. People were drinking and stuff tastes awful and puking and Johnny jumped on Sally and we had to pull him off of her. 
she was screaming, it was pretty hideous, Mom. Well, you just hit gold, because she thought about it, and it looked kind of stupid to her. What happens if you start to lay on punishments, degrading her, attacking her, breaking her down? Your effectiveness diminishes. You got this? Now, a lot of kids won't give you the gold, but your question sets it off in their head. And that's shaping a belief. So then when the kid says, all right, what's my punishment? You say, well, I'm not really into punishment. She says, great, so I can go back to the park tonight. You say, eh, 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 we've got to talk. What if it happens again? Kid will say, oh, it'll never happen again. I learned my lesson. You say, well, it's nice to hear, but what do we do if it happens again? I don't know, I guess you should ground me. No, I'm not into grounding. I'll tell you what, if it happens again, and can we say you're not yet ready for the freedom, decision-making challenges of the away sleepovers, which is where it all happens. The away sleepovers. Sorry, but parents' houses you think are safe. Be very careful about all this. In any event, she says, what, I can't have sleepovers? And you say, no, honey, of course you can. I'm not trying to hurt you. You just made a bad decision. You're a great kid. You're smart. You'll get this. You're just not ready. This is a hard world to make good decisions in. Have your sleepovers here. I'll get the pizza and the movies. The kids won't come here. Can you eyes that sweet? <laughs> right? You get the drill. The louder you get, the more you say, the less they hear. Be like the dispassionate cop. Always set consequences in place. So that means they may escape on the first offense, but you talk about what happens with the second offense. Everybody got the drill? and you link it to their behavior, not, I'm going to take stuff you love, give me your guitar, you know, give me your music. It's all about, well, this is where you made the mistake. How do we make you safer the next time? Okay, I'm going to shut up. We're going to do some Q&A, and since you're terrified, maybe you'll shout real loud so I can hear you. If not, we do have a microphone, and we're going to play, do you want to shout or you want the microphone? Hi, my name is Kevin. I have a son who is addicted to his phone, and we're not sure what to do about that. We have, we have competing microphones, so we have to turn there on back one line. And he says his son is addicted to the phone, doesn't know what to do about it. Well, if you go online, you'll find lots of uh, more specific advice. But remember what your goal is. Your goal is not to get the phone out of his hands. Your goal is to help your child learn about screen addiction, shape the beliefs. Because a lot of parents will grab the phones, and the kid never learns how to handle a phone. They go off to college. I have kids that come home, crashed and burned. I had a kid last year that was up for three days without sleeping, playing video games, because they never learned how to self-regulate. And then they went nuts when they had access to video games. You want your kids screwing up while they're home. So that's actually your blessing. So what do you do? You start to talk about with your kid, do you think that you're addicted? You start the discussion. The kid will say, nah, that's stupid. Nobody can be addicted to a phone. I say, well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you research it? I'll research it, and we'll get back together tomorrow. Uh, screen addiction is now going into the Diagnostic Statistical Manual you know, for mental disorders. They are absolutely addicting. They light up the reward circuits in the brain, just like drugs do. So then you share the research, and then you say to him, what do you think is an appropriate amount of time? 
and then he'll have to do something conservative. He might say, I don't know, like three hours, four hours, and they'll say, well, I'll tell you what, let's try that for a week, and we'll see how you do. By the way, the American Academy of Pediatrics and Alice and psychologists recommends two hours of screen time. Two hours of screen time. Beyond that, we see incredible pathology. In any event, you say, all right, you, you try for four. You can put a program on there that tells you how much screen time is going down. And then you review it. I know you've got to live with it for another X number of days, and, but you review it. And you go out to the coffee shop. Let's take a look, see how you did. Wow, you're, you're on 12 hours a day. I was? Yeah, look, look at what it said. What do you think we should do? Oh, I'll get it this week. Well, I'll tell you what. If you think you can max it out at three hours a night yourself, then I'm willing to let it go. But if you can't, consequence, if you can't, can we both agree that maybe you have a problem? Maybe this thing is addicting like this research is. Oh, I guess so. And then, is it okay if I take the phone or shut it down? Just go online. Use passive measures, don't get into fistfights or phone. So I can kill it, I'm gonna shut it down. But you have another week. If you can do it, terrific. And if the kid can't do it, which you won't, then you say, <laughs> it's okay. And you're shaping the belief, because then the kid is like, my God, I can't shut it off? What's happening with me? That's the goal, you get it? So then you do have it shut down. The kid says, I can't believe you're doing that. Say, well, this is temporary. We're going to do this for a month. We're going to repeat this. Because my goal, son, is that you be able to self-regulate. not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you understand that cigarettes, drugs, and screens are addictive. And a lot of adults are addicted to them. You got it? I'm sorry it's not the quick, easy answer that you want. It isn't the answer I ever wanted, but it works. Next question. Feel free to shout out if you want. Yes, ma'am. Stand up and shout. Well, I think that um, I feel like even more than um, the need is mixing it with the rule. And it's like, you know, Yep. She's saying, uh, what about nicotine and the jewel pens? Yeah, they can hide it. Uh, and we know that the, the vaping, that's what they call it. You all know what the jewels are? Okay. And they vape this stuff. They typically start with the fruit juices. People that make these things are very, very skilled at addicting generations of kids. By the way, do you also know there's dark side psychologists, I'm not making this up, that work with the platform developers for video games and cell phones. There are psychologists that get paid a huge amount of money to addict your children to these devices. That's not a rumor I get in a bar. The APA, American Psychological Association, has a movement where we're trying to throw out, disenfranchise members who work for platform developers. Because we now know they actually set up Fortnite. Y'all know about Fortnite? Fortnite is nicotine. It's, I'm sorry? It is. It's crack cocaine. They, they're, they're brilliant. They're geniuses. We call them the dark side psychologists. They know exactly what they're doing and they're sons of bitches. And they're addicting kids to this stuff. And I mean addicting with a capital F, where they can't put it down. But we need them to learn. The first step, we call it, you know, being contemplative in treating addiction is understanding, my God, this thing owns me. So you've got to identify that. So the jewels are deadly, they're not allowed jewels. They are gateways, they move from 
grape juice, and nicotine to weed. They're also drooling weed. And those oils, that's where you get into the nine times potency stuff with the oils and the waxes they put in the vape devices. So the whole thing is, is deadly. Next question. Yes, ma'am. Uh, can you stand up and nice and loud, please? Absolutely, but also balance that. It's not black and white. It's this situation where you want to help the kid understand what's involved, but you may have to step them down until they're older, because we don't know that kids are capable of putting the screen down on their own. So you have to do these deals where you're constantly checking and engaging them about how, how did you make out? And maybe she, you hit gold, maybe she does two hours a night, and that's cool but you have to be monitoring it. In general, again, American Academy of Pediatrics is saying, you know, not till eighth grade, you're talking about 13 or 14, and a lot of the psychologists are saying 15, 16, about unfettered access to the internet. We're seeing lots of nasty things coming from unfettered access to the internet. Sexual stuff, uh, girls are now getting addicted to pornography, which we didn't think was possible. Sexual fetishes have exploded. All the stuff they can find when they have unfettered access. Next question. Yes, ma'am. Could you stand up and nice and loud, please? Pretend you're yelling at your kid. You brought up sleep before and like some tricks to help with kids getting enough sleep. Right. Uh, tricks to help your kid get enough sleep. Well, I'm open to them. Do you have any ideas? Um, first, you have to shape the belief. And that's talking, sharing, research, yada, 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 the drill we did before. Push comes to shove, you'll find your kid is not really capable of going to sleep earlier. You have to retrain the brain to do that. You can. You can set the clock in your head that tells you when to get tired. Don't you typically get tired about the same time? So is your kid. So you can reset that. Now, if you go online, punch up sleep hygiene, and there we have lots of tricks about exactly how to do this. But the first step is get your kid on board. Try to get them to agree to try to sleep more. And that's after you've talked about the research and so forth. And how can you do that? Bribe them. I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to say bribe. I get nasty hate mail. Incentivize them. Pay them to try to get to sleep. Say, so we'll do this for a month. Keep a log, 10 point scale. How do you feel in the morning when you get up? and I will actually pay you. You can earn stuff, concert tickets, whatever deal you want to earn, work out. Apply the sleep hygiene things, and then see how they feel. And then you set that clock in their head, and they've got the scale, and they say, man, I do feel better. But these kids are literally brain toxic in the morning. 
When you get them up for school, it's like me waking you up at 4 a.m. Saying, come on, get up, let's do some calculus. What do you say, you know? And, and your head hurts. These kids are brain toxic if you read about sleep. Couple of rules if they agree. Uh, all screens have to be shut off an hour before designated sleep time, meaning drooling on the pillow. Shut down the screens. The screens are activating, they work like coffee, quite literally, on the brain, both because of the screen, and when they say, oh, I took the blue diode out, you know, with the program, that doesn't do it. It's more the intensity of what goes on on the screen. It's enraging, it's funny, it's uh, sad, it's threatening, and that activates the brain. So screens have to be shut off. The room should be dark. They go to the room, kill the lights, except for a reading light. Rooms should be cold. I don't care about your air conditioning bills in the summertime. It's well worth it. should be cold. They should read uh, sitting on the floor, blanket over their shoulders, with a little reading light. When their eyes get heavy, you climb into bed. If you toss and turn, get out of it. You can't wrestle yourself to sleep. Hide the clock. Set the alarm. Do not be able to see the clock. You don't want to know what time it is. It wakes you up, right? Oh my God, 1 a.m., I'll be exhausted. So there's a whole bunch of these tricks you use, and they work great. Step one is get your kid to take a shot at it. That's something that she wants to earn. Yes, ma'am, nice and loud. Uh, Please, sorry. Great question. ADHD is all this bigger and faster. Yeah, ADHD kids have all these challenges, but it's not regular season, it's the playoffs. Because all this stuff goes faster, distractibility, inability. How do you work with the self-regulation? Key is wellness, sleep, diet, and exercise. It makes huge differences. You may need the medication. We find that the wellness works as well as meds. Sometimes you have to go to the med. But if you can get your kid to sleep, that's a huge piece of ADHD. If you're getting two-thirds of your sleep for months, are you ADHD? I sure as hell am. So we can knock it down. And even if they need medicine, we use much less medicine and get the same impact. Okay? Yes? I'm sorry, louder screen time is around the day, is that right? That's the recommendation. Um, what about when they use the screens in school? Is that included that time period? Like I hate to tell you this. Yeah. For many hours and you have homework I get it. Yeah, I can't tell you. I can tell you that's why the Silicon Valley guys are getting the screens out of their schools and saying, I don't want my kid being told to use a screen to do his homework. I can only lay out the, the challenge for you. So if you can narrow it down at home after the school screen stuff, you're moving in the right direction. But, you know, I know it's impossible. Even two hours after school is going to be really hard. That's why we say, if the kid's already doing it, sorry, but with your younger kids, you know, figure out something else to give them. Hold off the screen for as long as possible so the brain wires in. Okay, one more question and then we'll get you out of here.
understood. Uh, she's saying that alcohol scares the heck out of them, and, and it should. So again, if you go online, there's lots of good stuff. Uh, National Center for Addiction Diseases and so forth. Just Google that. You get lots of good things to begin discussions. The idea is to start discussing, not lecturing. Discussing, by the way, the best way to shape a belief is not to give them information, but to ask them questions. So you, uh, coffee shops work great. You know, just get her out there. Coffee shops. Hey, you know, just for giggles, I was wondering, do you think it's okay for teenagers to drink alcohol? Oh yeah, absolutely, mom. Really? Have you seen any research about that? Oh yeah, I see lots of stuff. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you get your research? I'm going to do some research. We'll go out for another latte tomorrow. We'll take a look at this stuff. See, respect-based, stepwise progression, shaping beliefs. If push comes to shove, she says, no, I'm drinking, you may have to block the door. Say, no, you're not. But the, the work is to get this belief shaped before you have to block the door, where you've had a respect-based discussion. The, the advantage is the screen can help you with this in terms of the research. Alcohol does the same thing as weed does. It's just that it's not quite, for me, as scary. Because when a kid is doing too much alcohol, they can feel they're dying. They get so sick from it. The weed doesn't do that. The weed is more satanic. It's like really, really good at seducing these kids into these drugs. So I'm going to have to cut it out because I know people are leaving. But right through your question, final commandment, this too shall pass. <laughs> Can interpret that as you want. Guys, veteran parents will tell you it does get better as they get older. Time is on your side. Another mantra is alive at 25. Alive at 25. You're in short time. Just have to get through a few years and things start to get better. So what do you do in those few years? A couple of key points. One, stop fearing failure. See the crisis as your blessing. You know, you just feel completely bottomed out when your kid comes home half in a bag. You should get on your knees and say thank you to whoever. Why? Because now you can deal with it. While they're under your roof, you want them screwing up. You want them first screwing up 3,000 miles away in a frat house? No thank you. I want them screwing up so you can start this belief shaping stuff. Right? That's the goal. That's what you're really here to do. Don't get so upset. Just time to go to work. What is the work? Focus on the heart. Focus on the heart. Not the GPA. Not the batting average. Focus on the heart. Guys, when kids find purpose and passion, when they figure out what's important to them in the world, who they are, what makes them feel good, like those kids working with the homeless folks. You know, it's like wonderful. It's huge. Better than Johns Hopkins Summer Science Program. It's huge because it's making them think about the world and justice and all that sort of thing. Wonderful, great, do more of that stuff. That's all about the heart. Ross <clears throat> was an average student through high school. He was admitted to the George School, a fabulous school, broke our hearts, said he wasn't going. But when he was a young man, we realized it was all about the heart. Sarah made us crazy. Because she just wore us down. She was screaming, screaming. We were sitting on the sofa after she was with us for a month. And we were just exhausted. And Ross started to cry. He was eight years old. And he said to my wife, send her back. 
I said, you have to send her back. I said, you're different. They pointed to me, you're different. I said, everything's different. You know, it's just not working. You have to send her back. And we were crying, just sitting there. I, I couldn't talk. Ross on his own said, well, we can't send her back. If we send her back, who will feed her? Who will love her? This is an eight-year-old. He had the heart of a lion, right? So how do you... How do you get tough over grades on that? That's when I knew this kid was going to be, he was better than me. And I was like, you know, thank you, Jesus. He's better than me. And that's really what I wanted. Once you get the heart in place, achievement follows, guys. Once the kid figures it out, you can't stop it. Get out of their way. They're going to, you know, light up. They might not become who you want them to be, but that's not their job. Their job is to become who they are supposed to be. Understand? So it's not about GPA, it's not about batting averages. It's about the heart, the caring, compassion. Guys, think about what your job is, your mission. Your mission is not to raise an Ivy League student. That's a real poor mission. Your mission is to raise the parents of your grandchildren. That's your mission. This is as close as we get to touching the face of infinity. How you conduct yourself with this child when you want to punch him in the face and you're terrified and so forth. They are drinking in what you do. You think they don't. They roll their eyes, they think you're ridiculous. They are drinking in what you do. How do you conduct yourself with your partner? How do you resolve conflict with the neighbor? How do you handle the jerk who cuts you off on the road? How do you handle me when I walk in half in the back? They're drinking it in. You're shaping them very powerfully. What do you want to pass down as your heirloom? Rage, hatred, denigration, criticism, never being good enough? Is that what you want? How about things like compassion, patience, especially in the face of provocation? What would you like to see your children do with their children when their children are making them crazy? When their children, your grandchildren, are teenagers? That's your mission. Because that's the goal you have to go after. A couple of tricks, I'll give you my two best tricks that helped me survive so far. One is the deathbed exercise. Before I would go nuts on my kids because the room was a mess, coming home from a trip, and I knew it was going to be a sea of Chinese food boxes because my wife was away, I would stop in the garage and I would say, Mike, you know what you're going to see? How will you feel when you're on your deathbed reviewing your life? How will you feel then about what you're about to do tonight? Thank you. Got it. Sarah, give me a hug, girl. God, I missed you. God, I heard about you. She played rugby. I heard about that game you played her. I'm really proud of you, girl. You're amazing. I'm so, so happy you came to be with us. And could you help me for the 10,000th time clean up the sea of Chinese? <laughs> Guys, deathbed exercise that sobers us up. And that's the final hint. Humor. you got to laugh. Humor is the life-saving, last-stand defense for cops in bad neighborhoods and soldiers in foxholes and parents of troubled teenagers. Humor. My wife and I have a cartoon on the wall that got us through a lot of bad nights. It's in the New Yorker. It has a middle-aged couple on opposing couches or reading books. And the husband says to his wife, you know, sweetheart, now that the kids are all in jail, Maybe we can finally take that trip we always do. <laughs> Good luck out there, guys. Good luck out there. Thanks for coming out. Thank you.